Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Hey, Jim. Good to see you again. Lots to talk about today. Awful lot going on in the world. It's it's what to leave out, actually. But I wanted to start by remarking on uh, our most popular podcast by a long way now, and the numbers are still going up. Our most popular podcast by a long way was this weekend's with uh, Seamus Coffey, Professor of Economics at UCC, who took us via a tour de force explanation of the Irish corporation tax system and dispelled a lot of the myths and beliefs that uh, people have had. And, I, and it's had an amazing reaction across various forms of media, particularly social media. So I just wanted to give a big shout out to Seamus for a real education in, in language, I think, that we all understood for once, which, which was great. So, so many thanks indeed for that. And I know I would say this, wouldn't I? But I would thoroughly recommend that podcast for anybody that's interested in what is an incredibly important matter, not just for Ireland, but uh, for many other countries. You'll learn a lot if you take a listen. So moving on to today's subject matter, one of the things that I happened to be listening to the other week, the other day, Jim, was you um, on the Pat Kenny show. I didn't immediately switch off, but given that I, I, t- I hear your dulcet tones quite enough, thank you very much. But it was, it was, uh, he tackled you on a couple of things, actually, with both of which were, were extremely interesting. One was about Irish banking and the KBC decision, and the other was a report that you've written about COVID. I think today would be a great time to elaborate a little bit on that, because not everybody listens to the Pat Kenny show and not everybody will have read your report. So um, why was Pat Kenny interested in the KBC decision, do you think? Well, it's um, coming, it's a decision from KBC that's coming on top of a lot of pretty similar banking decisions since the beginning of the year. Uh, we had the announcement that 
Nash West was shutting down its Ulster Bank operation in Ireland. Um, then we had the announcement from Bank of Ireland that it was closing over 60 of its branches um, in Ireland. Um, and now we have KBC announcing it's withdrawing from the banking system. And if, if you in Ireland, and if you look back at how banking has changed here over the last 10 or 15 years, and if you remember all of the names that were in the Irish banking system, you know, Bank of Scotland, Anglo-Irish Bank, um, and so on, um, it's becoming more and more concentrated. And I think that is the the, the, the really big part of this story is that we are now effectively back at or about to come back to a two and a tiny bit banking system. And that is the sort of banking system I would have grown up with in the 70s and 80s before we got the rush of um, foreign banks into the country. So the KBC controls about 13% of the mortgage market. It's going to sell its mortgage book to Bank of Ireland. That will enable Bank of Ireland leapfrog over AIB as the biggest player in the mortgage market. But I think more significantly, it will give over 70% of the mortgage market to two banks. Um, permanent TSB then has a bit, and then we have a number of other non-bank, small non-bank providers of mortgages. So I guess the real significance of this, Chris, is that our banking system is becoming more and more concentrated. More and more concentrated means less competition. And generally, less competition means a worse deal for the consumer. And the really significant thing I think about KBC in the mortgage market is that it had a very heavy focus on first-time buyers and actually did create a decent product for first-time buyers and did create a lot of competition in that market. So as Irish banks leave, well, clearly it's going to leave um, a more difficult situation. And I guess the other really significant thing about this is why is, this, why is it happening? Why are all of these banks um, deciding at this stage to leave Ireland? What does that say about Ireland? What does it say about Irish banking? And what does it say about the future of banking here, particularly for small and medium enterprise, for SMEs and for personal borrowers, because um, the large corporations have no problem getting bank facilities domestically or internationally. Uh, but it's the, uh, I suppose, that the segment of the banking population that's less bankable, that's less attractive to the big players. That's where I would have the real concern at this stage. So what does it tell you, Chris, about what's happening in our banking system? Because I commented, and I, I presume this is why Pat Kenny took it up with me. Um, I got a headline in the Examiner there at the time of the Ulster Bank announcement saying that this was Ireland's second banking crisis in just over a decade. So I think it's pretty dramatic stuff. Maybe I'm being a drama queen as usual. Uh, but what do you think? Far be it from me to... to hurl those sorts of descriptions at you, Jim. I come up with a question which is which relates to your point about it being a banking crisis, because I'm, I'm mindful of, of what the banks put us through over a decade ago now. This may well be bad news for the consumer with respect to what they're actually paying for their mortgages, which is, you know, there's nothing good about that, except it's good for the banks. And does this have the paradoxical consequence that the banking system is actually now safer so that we won't have that kind of a crisis that we had back then, because you could argue, I suppose, that too much competition back then was what drove 
the inappropriate innovation in the mortgage market, the fact that they were the competition drove people to make silly loans at silly prices, which meant that the banks went bust. In an oligopoly situation, which is econo jargon for saying essentially that we've got two banks in Ireland now, at least they're going to be safe and they're not going to go bust. Is that is that a, is that a positive worth uh, mentioning? I don't believe so, Chris. I'm I'm surprised actually that you come out with such a naive comment as that. Um, I I remember back in '99 when Bank of Scotland announced that it was going to enter the Irish mortgage market. Um, it got front page headlines on the Irish Times um, as marking a really really significant day for the Irish mortgage holder, and indeed it did. Because within months or even weeks of that decision from Bank of Scotland, uh, the average mortgage rate here fell by over 2%, literally overnight. So that showed you what a bit of competition actually does to the incumbent players. And it, it is interesting that um, over the last few weeks, particularly since the Ulster Bank announcement and now the KBC announcement, the share price of AIB and Bank of Ireland has increased that means the markets believe the banks are going to become more profitable. And one of the reasons why they become more profitable is because they have this dominant position in the market. They will be able to charge consumers what they want to charge. So they will be um, ba basically screwing the banking public here. So what's good for the banks is bad for the customer and vice versa. And sorry, before, before you um, intervene here, Chris, uh, the other thing I would take you up on is the fact you said it's too much competition. Competition is good, provided it's regulated properly. And that's where I believe we failed. Um, when Bank of Scotland came in, created this massively competitive mortgage market, the central banks stood back and did absolutely nothing to regulate the behavior of the banks. You know, we got 100% plus mortgages. Um, I remember hearing loads of anecdotal stories, which turned out to be factual, that about people going in, um, getting a, a mortgage equivalent to maybe 90, 95% of the value of the house. So a 90, 95% loan to value ratio. And then they got as part of the mortgage, a 30 grand or whatever um, loan to buy furniture for the house. So effectively, it was giving them a mortgage in excess of 100%. And the regulator stood back and did damn all about it. So competition, in my view, is good, but competition needs to be actually regulated. And I'm kind of surprised at you, Chris, that you would come out an outlandish statement like that. Um, I hope you're acting devil's advocate. I'm glad after all these years, Jim, I'm still capable of surprising you. But it, it was a semi-serious point. And I'll make another semi-serious point um, because the lack of competition clearly hurts people who borrow from the banks. Um, the, the banks have a high profit margin and the people that are paying them that profit are the people borrowing from them, the mortgage holders. But the Irish taxpayer or the Irish state, therefore every every citizen, not just tax taxpayer, still has quite a chunky stake in these two banks, particularly AIB. It, it, it certainly does. Um... So the profits are really, a large chunk of them are accruing to the entire Irish state. Every citizen has a stake. And so if you look at this in the round, we actually, if we are the majority shareholder in these banks, and I know that we're only a minority shareholder in Bank of Ireland, but we do own a significant stake of AIB still. We actually want them to be, as, as Irish citizens, you want them to be as profitable as possible. That would be sort of a, a slight well, counter to what you're saying. And I know that means what one subgroup, let me finish, let me finish. Um, you've, you've had a good old go at me, so I'll have another, another 
and that, that give me a few seconds. And, and I go back to that stability point. I do think that when banks are profitable, they are more stable. But if I can make an economic sort of stroke financial point to you, which is that what this means is that Irish mortgage payers have to um, higher interest rates to pay on their mortgage, which from a cash flow point of view and from every point of view is not a good thing. But one of the consequences of that will be, in my estimation anyway, arguably, is that Irish house prices will be lower than they would otherwise be. So you might have a higher mortgage rate, but the actual amount that you have to borrow to buy your house is less. So your outgoings, it might be a bit of a wash. Because one of the interesting things about the Irish housing market at the moment is that in the UK, housing is doing very well. In the US, it's it's spectacular. The Economist newspaper um, only last week talk about, talked about a global boom in property prices. That's not happening in Ireland. And I know there's lots of reasons for that. Um, but one of them could be due, due to these high mortgage rates. So yeah, you have a high mortgage rate, but you have low, ho- low house prices. So in terms of how much it actually costs the mortgage holder, it comes out did in you, the wash. Did you say we've low that? house prices? Lower than they would well, otherwise that, have been. That, 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 because if you if, if you if you took a if you took a percentage point off the Irish mortgage rate, what do you think would happen to house um, prices? That's a debatable point. Not a lot would happen actually because of the central bank's prudential regulations that that limits the amount that people can borrow uh, on an LTV basis. So there are decent regulations in place at the moment, I believe, to control house prices. But the, the biggest problem with house prices in Ireland today is not too much credit chasing too few houses it's too much demand chasing too few houses so there's a demand supply problem here rather than a mortgage problem i mean the the bottom line is chris the bottom line is um irish average mortgage rates are more than one and a half percent above the eu average and i fear that that margin is going to even increase further in an environment where there's less competition so i i don't accept your argument that um, high mortgage rates has actually prevented Irish house prices from rising. And in fact, um, Irish house prices in the last 12 months have actually been amazingly resilient and strong, despite what was going on in the economy. And an earlier point you made that I have to take you up on, you know, you say that given that the Irish taxpayer owns such a significant chunk of AIB, particularly smaller shareholder in Bank of Ireland, so the more profitable they are, Um, the better it is for the Irish taxpayer. But if you then consider where the profits are coming from, the profits are coming out from the real economy. So net net, I do believe that profitable banks are actually bad for the economy in this case, because they are basically screwing um, the economy and the banking public. So I think on balance, high mortgage rates do more damage to the real economy then they benefit us through the share price of the banks increasing because they're more profitable. So I, I, I have to say, and I, I I heard, I came on the Pat Kenny show the other morning in the immediate aftermath of Pascal Donoghue, um, who's, a, who's a politician I actually admire and like a lot. Um, I think he's a fantastic communicator. But he was trying to sugarcoat what was going on basically trying to play down the significance of KBC exiting the market. There is no way you could remotely argue that KBC exiting the market is in any way positive for the Irish economy, for um, the the Irish banking public, um, or or indeed, um, you know, what does it say about Ireland as a place in which to invest? We have serious banking problems now, and they're going to get worse. 
I, quite frankly, it's easy for you on that side of the water to try and sugarcoat this situation. You're not living here. You're not banking here. When you get a lack of competition, the service provided to clients actually deteriorates. And personally, that is my experience. But if, if and I am an SME and talking to a lot of, a lot of other SMEs out there in the system, they really feel disenfranchised at this stage in terms of their access to proper competitive customer friendly banking services. Yeah, I I get that you feel you you feel very strongly about that Jim, but I suspect the finance minister is looking at the banking system and saying that we need a healthy banking system. Um we need a well capitalized banking system and that the first thing that we have to do is try to um, restore some health to these banks. I mean, one of the things I noticed about the KBC decision is that they still have an awful lot of bad loans on their books, which they're not selling to Bank of Ireland for fairly obvious reasons. Somebody else is going to have to deal with that crap. Um, and one suspects that there's still an awful lot of crap on both Bank of Ireland and AIB balance sheets. And, one of, and the, the European way, it's not just the Irish way, the European way for dealing with its very weakened banking system following the financial crisis was to allow the passage of time and forbearance and um, in Ireland's case high profit margins to gradually restore the financial health of the banks rather than dealing with it all at once which is what they did in the states so I, I suspect this one run and run Jim and I think it's, it's been a, it's been a lively debate but I think it's time for an even can, livelier sorry, Chris, debate. Can I have the last second. word on this please? Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't doubt I that think you will, it Jim. is kind of interesting that um, the chief executive of KBC, um, whose name escapes me at the moment, um, he commented there some time back that it was time uh, the central bank and Ireland basically forgot about the whole tracker mortgage scandal and moved on. And he got absolutely berated on the back of that. So there is a conspiracy theory out there that. Um, part of his part of the motivation for the decision last week to shut its operations here uh, was a slight sense of vindictiveness a against the backdrop of what he had said at the time and the response he got. Uh, that's probably way over the top, but it is kind of amusing. Sorry, Chris, you were about to delve into something else there. That's a wonderful segue. You mentioned conspiracy <laughs> theory. It's a it's a wonderful link to um, the next topic of conversation that you had with Penny, which is all about a report that you published, I think, on Friday, Friday last, all under all about COVID. And it was first of all, it was a very good description of the gov of what Ireland has done, what the world has done, how it's dealt with the economic consequences, the economic impact of all the various government policies that have been put in place, mostly to restrict economic activity, but also social activity as well. And Pat Kenny had a right old go at you. I won't repeat what he said, but you talked about conspiracy theories, Jim. I mean, you came across as a big critic of what the Irish government has done with respect to its response to COVID. And I suppose a, a jaundiced or... Uh, extreme description of, of, of Jim Power at the moment is that he's become a bit of a lockdown sceptic um, and of which there are plenty here in the UK from where I'm sitting at the moment there's plenty sitting on the back benches of the Conservative Party and typically we regard these people as swivel-eyed loons and um, I certainly hope that you're not thinking of uh, asking for application forms for, for these kinds of organizations. Are Chris, you, how can I possibly answer that one? Um, no, I, I am definitely... <laughs> Tell am me about the report. Tell me about the report. Um, lockdown skeptic. Um, 
I was approached there some months back by an organization, a group called COVID Recovery Ireland, uh, which is a group made up of basically people who are critical of the government and NEFID's approach to handling the COVID crisis in March of last year. There's a lot of people involved with commercial interests, particularly in the aviation industry. Uh, there's a lot of medics in there who basically don't agree with the stance that's been taken here. So um, I, I wouldn't certainly, and they're called COVID Recovery Ireland, I certainly wouldn't describe them as swivelly-eyed loons. I think they are people who are deeply concerned about um, the manner in which this crisis has been handled, the damage it's doing to the economy, the damage it's doing to society, and the damage it's ultimately going to do to the health of the nation. And um, the reason why I was asked to do it, I presume, is because you know, I have voiced a lot of concern on Eamon Dunphy's Stand podcast, for example. I've written about it numerous places over the last number of months um, about the approach. Um, I have a lot of criticisms. I mean, firstly, I think no attempt has been made at doing a cost-benefit analysis of the approach adopted. Um, I also think there's very little um, assessment, well, same thing, really, little assessment of the costs of the policies that have been pursued weighed up against any benefits that might have been attained. Neffet had absolutely nobody in its membership with any commercial interest whatsoever. There was nobody in there, to my knowledge, that ever ran a small business. Um, it also was given a very, very one-dimensional mandate by the government, which is basically to control covid keep the pressure off the hospital system. Um, as I say, there was no consideration given to um, the costs of the policies that have been pursued. And I tried in a scientific way as possible, based on the evidence that we have to date, I tried to assess the social, the economic and the health consequences of um, the approach that has been adopted. And I, I, I commented in the report that I believe at the end of all of this, that when a full and complete cost benefit analysis is actually done, that the costs will outweigh the benefits and that the legacy will haunt Ireland economically, socially and from a health perspective for decades to come. Because um, let, let's not forget the Oxford Stringency Index, for example, that I cited and included in this report it shows that over the last 12 months, on average, Ireland has been subjected to amongst the most stringent set of conditions than any other country in the world. And if you accept that, and then you ask yourself the question, does that mean that Ireland has actually fared much better in terms of death rates, death rates etc.? Uh, no, it hasn't. I mean, we, we've had serious health crises here over the last 12 months. So I'm, I'm not a lockdown skeptic. Um, I believe um, it was necessary to actually control certain activities to try and get the virus under control. Uh, but I think there was a total lack of nuance in the sense that there was no assessment done of different risks. And I go back to my old chestnut. And this is making it very personal. I like to spend my life on my own in the mountains and the hills around Dublin and Wicklow. And I've been prevented from doing that. My next door neighbors here are two avid golfers. They have been prevented from doing that. So do, 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 would you believe for one minute 
that the risks associated with me being on the side of a mountain or my two neighbours out on a golf course in the fresh air, that those risks are the same as the risks involved in being inside in a packed pub in Dublin city centre. So it's that lack of nuance uh, that really, really gets me that the total failure to properly assess the risks involved in different activities. There has been a sledgehammer approach. I described it in the report as a scorched earth approach to uh, the economy particularly. But then I spoke to a lot of health experts when I was doing this report. Um, you know, they estimate, for example, that at least 2,000 cancers failed to be detected last year because of the total focus on COVID-19. Um, and I could go on and on about it, but I, I, I just think that the costs involved will ultimately far outweigh the benefits of the policies that have been pursued, well, have been suggested by NEFET and that have been pursued by the government. Thanks for that, Jim. And as, as you know, um, I, in my writings for the Irish Times and elsewhere, have, have voiced um, not exactly the same concerns, but certainly one or two very, very similar ones. And I want to talk in a minute about the media response uh, th that your, your piece has received. So, you know, I'm not unsympathetic to, to most of what you've been saying. But if you don't mind, I am going to be a little bit challenging because I know some of our listeners will be wanting to challenge you on some of this. First of all, in terms of the approach that you take, you've mentioned that it was, uh, at least in part, um, a, a cost-benefit analysis. Now, as an economist, I know a little bit about cost-benefit methodology. And one of the criticisms in and the, the use of cost-benefit analysis across all sorts of different government policies is that um, it depends an awful lot on the assumptions that you make, the underlying model that you're using, and that too often in the past, over many decades of the use of cost-benefit cost analysis, it can be made to say pretty much whatever you want to say. Um, I'd be interested in your response to those general criticisms of, of, of that approach. Um, but cost-benefit analysis, this is my second question for you, it's a two-part question, um, is, is all about trade-offs. And economics is always all about trade-offs. And some very prominent economists, particularly in the UK, but elsewhere, have said all along that the idea that COVID and the, the health crisis presents us with policy trade-offs is a false impression, that there is no trade-off, that in the end, that if you think that opening up versus not opening up involves all these different calculations, it's a false dichotomy, it's a, it's a false trade-off because... Um, if you were to just, and I know this is not what you're arguing, but it, 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 let's set up a straw man here, that if you were saying, for example, that the alternative to what was done was to fully open up, it would, it would not have produced economic benefits because the economy would have collapsed anyway because of the even worse health outcome. So it's, 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 is cost-benefit analysis the right way to, to, to treat this? And do you accept those economists' arguments who say that there is no trade-off, that the only way to have done this was to have locked down. I know what your answer is going to be, but I just wonder if people hit you with these sorts of things, what do you actually Yeah, say? I mean, Chris, I would share the um, scepticism you've expressed there about cost-benefit analysis. I mean, typically cost-benefit analysis can be used to give you whatever result you want to get when you're starting out. 
Uh, I tried to do it in a pretty dispassionate way. I, I looked at, is it 100% scientific? No, it's not, because you are working with incomplete data, incomplete information. And of course, there is still a distance to go before we come out the other end of this. But what I tried to do was, from an economic perspective, I looked at the impact of the policies that have been pursued um, we had 655,000 people on the live register or in receipt of the pandemic unemployment payment at the end of February. It has come down a little bit at the end of March, but you're still talking about over 630,000 people. You are talking about thousands of businesses shut down. And the question, of course, is, and I can't answer that immediately, how many of those businesses will reopen? And even if they do reopen, how many of those will survive? What damage will that do to the fabric of our towns and villages around the country, for example? And indeed, what will it do to Dublin city centre? You look at the uh, the fiscal repercussions of the policies that have been pursued, the pandemic unemployment payment costing around 140 million euro per week. Uh, last year, we borrowed just under 19 billion. This year, we're probably going to borrow in excess of 20 billion. Um, our national debt has run up massively. And one of the implications of that debt is that some years down the road, people are going to be complaining about underfunding of various aspects of the health service or of education, whatever. And, and, and that is one of the likely consequences of the debts that we've been running up at the moment. And Christy, I, I go back to the point I made there that we have had the most stringent set of restrictions of any other developed economy. Have we achieved a better outcome as a result of that? I don't believe we have. So I, I, I've i done my best to try and estimate the costs insofar as you can measure them. Um, and then the benefits, of course, would be the lives that were possibly saved and indeed the pressure that was kept off our hospital system over the last 12 months. And before I hand back to you, I would say one final thing. There was a very interesting story in the Sunday Times yesterday and probably covered in other newspapers about um, a the coroner in County Mayo, who is a chairperson of the Coroner's Association, whatever that is, um, was basically saying that a huge percentage of the deaths that have been recorded um, as resulting from COVID were actually amongst people who were already terminally ill. Okay, so... In other words, the coroner is questioning the data that's been used to, and, and the, these data obviously have influenced the policy approach that's been taken. So I go back to the point, I am not anti-lockdown, but I do believe there could have been a more nuanced approach that should have taken into account the economic, the fiscal, the health, mm. and the social consequences of the policies that were pursued. Cost-benefit analysis in this particular instance, Jim, as you know full well, and I, I know you dealt with this in your report because um, despite my earlier comments, um, which may have suggested otherwise, I have read the report um, thoroughly, and I know that you deal with this. But the thing that is, is most uncomfortable about cost-benefit analysis in this particular case of the health crisis is that it really has to confront this notion that if you save one life as a result of lockdown, Surely lockdown was well. Different. How many, how many lives have you cost as a result of that? Yeah, yeah, this is what I mean about it being a brutal, it brutal calculation. And um, 
it, it's it's really tough and you can understand i mean as somebody myself who's had covid I, 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 you know, I react emotionally as well as analytically to the subject. And anybody that's lost a loved one, of course, will re- react vi- viscerally to this, that, of course, anything, any policy that in, in a narrow context is seen to save lives. And what you're trying to do, I think, um, valiantly is to, to broaden that context and to, and to place it into a, a proper, complete, holistic analysis. Um, and well done. It was a great report. Um, you know, I know I would say that we're colleagues and friends, but I, I would urge people to read it before they react to it. Um, we live in an age where people react before they read. I, I, I know that um, to my own cost. One of the interesting things about the report, Jim, is the way in which it didn't get covered in the mainstream Irish media. Why, why do you think that yeah, was? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, Pat Kenny gave me a great run on Friday morning, RTE. Um, did not cover it on their website or on their um, TV or radio programming. To my knowledge, the Daily Mirror and the Daily Mail have been the only two newspapers that have covered it. Certainly, the Irish Times didn't touch it as a story. That could say a a couple of things. Um, Perhaps they just don't rate my analysis anyway, so they wouldn't be bothered covering it. And that's a a valid approach to take. But another interpretation would be that actually there has been a huge, huge failure to allow any sort of debate and discussion on the approach taken. And you, in your introduction to the piece there today, describing me as a squibbly-eyed anti-lockdowner something or other something or other people who have questioned that's how they've been branded so there has been a total failure to allow any sort of rational debate discussion i'm not saying for one moment chris that the analysis i've done is correct that the answers i've come up with are correct that the policies that i am suggesting should have been in the past and going forward, they're the ones that should be pursued. I, I, I don't know. Only time will answer that question. But I do think in an issue like this that has such profound implications for so many aspects of our lives, uh, be it economy-wise, mental health-wise, physical health-wise, the whole social aspect of what's happening, um, I think it actually um, deserved a lot more critical analysis than has actually been um, engaged in. And, and, and those who have questioned it, and I, I presume I have joined that group now, will be described as some sort, some sort of um, loons. Um, I am not. I mean, I, I, I have been no, fully I, compliant I... with the restrictions in place. OK, I haven't broken the rules. I wear a mask when I'm meant to wear a mask. Um, I would be the first in the queue for a vaccine. Um, when they eventually get around to my age segment in this country. But I just think it's that lack of nuance uh, that will leave a really, really significant legacy. And, and, And another point is that all of these people who have made these decisions have never tried to run a business themselves. They are mostly in the public sector, guaranteed salaries, guaranteed pensions, guaranteed jobs. You know, they don't have the sort of skin in the game that you would need to have a rational debate and discussion on a topic as important as this. So I think 
that contrary views need to be heard and need to be encouraged. I think that's absolutely right, Jim. And that's one of the things that I took away from, from your report was that uh, these issues should have been raised earlier. And the point you make about the very blunt approach taken by Ireland, the unchanging and blunt nature of the approach, the extreme nature of the approach, you mentioned the Oxford Stringency Index. And I think the argument you're making is really a question, which is, would a different approach have produced at least um, no worse an outcome um, from a health perspective? And indeed, could it have been a better outcome? And it, that my question about the media response to your piece was really um, born out of a feeling that I have, is that, de- that those kinds of questions are not even being allowed to be asked in the mainstream media, or at least large chunks of it in Ireland. And the points you make in the report about different policies producing different outcomes and maybe even better health outcomes, I think was well made because you've only got to look at other countries. You don't have to be a zero COVID advocate to to realise that many different countries have produced have pursued many different kinds of strategies with very different outcomes, some better, some worse. But there are a lot of countries that have not had as stringent a lockdown as Ireland that have had a better health outcome. They've done some things better. They've done some things differently. And it's that debate that I think that you've raised, which is incredibly important, that there are lots of things that could have been done differently, or at least questions asked about doing things differently. You raised the point about indoors versus outdoors, which is something that I've bored you to death with over many months now, both in terms of our own conversations and my writing and blogging and podcasting. And you make the points very well earlier on. Um, I noticed today that the Irish health minister has announced he's considering, um, but only considering, extending the dosage interval between the first and second dosage of the vaccine. That, more than any other decision, um, has allowed the UK to open up in the way that it has. And the fact that um, other countries are only now starting to think about it, because I I noticed that Spain has announced another similar consideration as well today, is, is simply staggering. The, you know, it, it, it certainly was a, um, an exper- policy experiment when it was first announced, but now all the data is in and has been in for months that it works, that it allows you to open up your economy earlier than you otherwise would do. And it also saves lives and it stops people getting sick and it stops, you know, it's incredible that people, that it's only today in the middle back end of April that uh, we are now only considering this in in other countries. There are lots of things that could at least have been considered. And I think that one of the fundamental problems has been about governance, has been about the makeup of these committees. They have them here in the UK, these vast committees. When I looked up NEFET the other day, it seemed to have 38 members. I don't know about you, Jim, but I've never served on a committee bigger than about four or five people that's ever been able to take a good decision with a large, you know, we all know about groupthink and all those other cliches. Yes, I, I certainly agree with you that, that it's extraordinary that at the very least these questions have not, have not been asked. And I must say, I, I felt that you answered them very well in your report, but you made it absolutely clear where the strengths and weaknesses of, of your methodology were and how a lot of your conclusions could, as indeed no conclusions could be um, right now definitive, but the, the absence of debate is, is both worrying and in my opinion, quite sinister. That's all we have time for today, Jim. So I'd like to thank you, thank our listeners. Uh, We've discussed two things today, the suppression of competition in banking and the suppression of debate in COVID. So, So thank you all very much indeed.
You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.